RadioInfluence.com. Welcome back to the Lawfather podcast. Uh, I know it's been a while here, a little bit of a hiatus between uh, some vacations and um, being out sick, but we are back. Yeah, you all definitely didn't want to hear me try to go on and do an, an audio podcast while being sick. It was uh, quite bad. But anyway, um, as you as you may see, if you're watching on YouTube, we are in the new Lawfather Studios. Uh, a little bit bland behind me. We'll be working on that. So those of you watching on YouTube who really enjoy this nice plain beige wall behind me, they'll be making a change here uh, the next couple of weeks. So a little bit of a work in progress. Uh, we have uh, a little half panel sound panel for a door <laughs> right now, um, which Jason loves. He laughed at me as I put it out. But anyway, uh, we're back. And uh, in the in-between time, while uh, we were out from this podcast, uh, go ahead and take a listen to DJ Eakin's new podcast, uh, Hip Hop Study Hall. We did a little bit of a segment together on R. Kelly and the legal ramifications of that. So that turned out to be a really interesting show, really interesting podcast. And, you know, like all things, and, and today's really no different in that, you know, a lot of these topics that we talk about are bad things, bad things happen. And, um, Unfortunately, it makes for really good discussions of law. Okay, so uh, we had had that which I just mentioned, and uh, we have uh, most recently and uh, within this past week, we have the Alec Baldwin shooting. Okay, and that one from a, a legal standpoint, from a firearm standpoint, from a lot of standpoints, just seems to be really interesting. Okay, look. Really, really bad story, right? Um, those of you who haven't heard what happened, uh, they're they're in New Mexico shooting a movie, and you know a lot of times in movies they use guns, and uh, you know it, most times isn't a problem. The last one that I can remember that created an issue was uh, the shooting of the crow, which I believe was late 80s, early 90s, uh, where someone died on set from uh, from a firearm incident. And that's what we had here. This, uh, this most recent week in New Mexico was one of the staffers on the other side of the camera was hit and actually uh, the, was hit and killed. And the director was also hit uh, and injured. So I want to take a look at that from the legal, legal standpoint. We're also going to have to take a look at it you know, in order to figure out the legal standpoint, we have to have some idea of, you know, the mechanics of, of all of this and, and how it works and what should be done or what shouldn't be done. And having a background in law enforcement, that helps a lot because we did a lot of training and we did a lot of training that was not all live firearms training, but you used your own gun, right? So there was a lot of safety protocols put in place. Um, the reality is it's an incident that should never, ever happen, okay? So I mentioned it before, but let's take a quick look at the the last uh, kind of big one that happened, last big firearms incident. Now, look, could there have been others in between? Sure, but did they reach the same level of uh, notoriety or newsworthiness? No, okay? Um my understanding of the crow incident was it was actually a blank. Okay. So you have 
really is these different kinds of things. So a real life firearm can fire many different types of projectiles. Okay. Um, regular bullets, right? We all are, are familiar with that. Hey, a gun shoots bullets, right? And there's rounds and, and all that. Okay. So that's the, the basic reason for a firearm, right? That's, that's why you would have them. Now, the other things are there's things called sim rounds. Uh, they're simulated rounds, uh, similar to paintball in a sense, okay, but they get shot from a regular gun. And what you have is the back, the casing part of it, the part that the uh, firing pin hits is a regular firearm casing. And then in the front, there's this uh, little plastic piece filled with, uh, filled with paint, okay? Um, they hurt a lot. If you get hit by them, uh, something that's used a lot in firearms training and uh, live scenario training in law enforcement. Okay. Uh, really self-corrective mistakes when you get hit with a sim round. All right. Um, there's, uh, there's some, uh, some firearms can shoot rubber bullets. Okay. Which I think have become uh, more well-known in recent time with uh, some of the protests and riots across the country and things like that. And then you have blanks. Okay. Actually you have blanks and then there's one other uh, blanks are the, it goes bang. Okay. And that's it. Now with the blank, and this is where the crow comes into play is you have uh, a little wad on the end of the blank and it, it actually projects out and, um, Basically, the way a blank works, it's, it's really just to simulate the sound. It sounds like a regular firearm being fired, okay, because it has a casing, it has gunpowder in it, and it has the same explosion and bang that it would. There's just essentially no major projectile that comes out. Now, what happened in the crow was was that the there was some kind of, they were too close or some kind of thing where... It wasn't quite done correctly, and the little bit of projectile from the blank came out and hit the person and killed them. Okay, that's how that one worked. And then uh, the other thing you can have, lastly, are dummy rounds. Um, dummy rounds don't do anything. It just makes the gun go click. That's it. Uh, nothing comes out. Nothing fires. Nothing else. So uh, those are your different types of rounds. Okay, um, so let's continue looking at things from a how do things work perspective and how things sh should be done. And then we can tie that all back into, let's come up with a little bit of a legal, legal analysis here and kind of explain what we could potentially see. And as a plaintiff's attorney, plaintiff's injury attorney, probably how we would handle it. So here's what you have. Okay. You have, you know, and this is how we did it in law enforcement because we carried live rounds, not shockingly, right? And when we did training, a lot of times before we actually went out to the range, we did a lot of dry fire training. We were in a classroom, right? Uh, a lot of it centered around what do you do if the gun goes click instead of bang, right? What do you do if it, it jams, right? All these different things. And we also did a lot of, um, live training, right? With, uh, and, and the one that sticks out most in my mind is when I was at, at Pinellas County, there was a closed down, I think it was a bank. Um, it was in one of the high rises. So we had several different floors. We did active shooter training and we used real guns. The trainers used real guns. Okay. But there wasn't one bit of live ammunition in the building. Okay. Uh, we used sim rounds, little paintball type rounds 
the trainers also used sim rounds, but they also used blanks as well. And you know, it, to, it creates that feeling of this is what it's going to sound like, right? And, and so that way, if you're in the situation for the first time, it's not foreign to you. Yes, there's a difference between training and real life, okay? But you're not overwhelming your senses with, oh, God, this is new, right? So that's that's one of the things that that we looked at. And, and you know, if you notice, if you ever saw them shooting the blanks there to create the sound, they're always shot up into the air, right? They were never actually shot at anybody. They were, they were shot in a safe direction. So that way, if the projectile did, if there's something crazy that happened, like the crow, there wasn't somebody that was going to get hurt by it. But I will tell you, getting hit by those sim paintball rounds does hurt, okay? <laughs> Not going to kill you, but uh, it does leave quite the little bruise, right? So what we would do is, and, it, and the, the process was the same, whether we were in a classroom working on some of the dry fire training or we were doing um, some real kind of live simulated training, is we would be responsible for emptying out our firearms, emptying out our magazines, and we would leave it all in our trunk, okay? So that way it never entered the facility, all right? Or at least theoretically never entered the facility, right? You're responsible for checking your weapon, checking your magazines, right? However, it's not quite good enough, right? Because why should I just trust me or why should you just trust me or why should I just trust Jason over here that he cleared everything, right? So we get in the room, we would... We would unholster our firearms. We would put them out in front of us, point them down, and we would slide the. We would uh, pull the slide back, lock it out. Jason would be standing next to me. Jason would check mine. I would check Jason's. I'd turn to the other side. That person would check, and and all the way down the line, right? We would check magazines as well. Once we all checked each other, we were still in a line. The trainers came by, and they checked. Okay, so we checked ourselves, right before we even entered the building. We were partner checked twice and the trainers checked us. There were no chances of live rounds being in any of those guns. Okay. And then furthermore, as we would, as the trainers would break out new and different things, right? Those would be checked and they had been checked before they were put away and they were checked again and again and again and again. Okay. So these things are checked over and over and over and over again right? There is realistically no excuse for what happened, okay? And that's where it ties back into the legal world. Now, here's the question, right? Who's ultimately responsible for this? And, and I'm not sure in a situation like this, you pin it on one person that has the ultimate responsibility, right? A uh, little concept called joint and several liability in terms of that each person's responsible, each entity is responsible, right? But we can't tell you necessarily which one was the main catalyst, right? Which one is the one 100% responsible. They all may carry some responsibility from the civil aspect, right? Is it is it the type of thing that you're going to expect uh, criminal charges? No, I, I don't. I would be shocked if we read in the news tomorrow, or the next day, the day after that, that Alec Baldwin was charged with manslaughter, right? Couldn't, definitely couldn't survive a murder charge, right? No intent. I, I guess, you know, if there were to be something that came out that you could go, yeah, he wrote in his diary how much he hated this person. And, uh, you know, he wrote down, I want them dead. And look, this is how I'm going to do it. 
right? Yeah, okay. But I don't think that's real life. I, I, I don't, there's nothing to indicate that that's what happened. So, um, yeah, could a manslaughter charge work? Probably not, okay? There's just so many different levels. And at the end of the day, to me, it's all civil. And it's maybe the processes that they're using need to be relooked at. Right. And, you know, they have a firearms expert there, an armorer, okay, that is supposed to check everything. They have stagehands there. And here's where this is going to get really messy from a civil side. You have a lot of people who are responsible. These people all work for companies, right? So you're going to have, this is what I would expect to see. And this is, this is how I would do it. I would expect to see it probably five or six different plaintiffs involved, okay? Probably, and it comes down to how many different companies, right? So let's break it down. The, you have the movie, right? Well, the movie is actually done through an LLC, right? A company. So there's one. There's one plaintiff, right? Those stagehands work for a company, right? Which is separate from the company who is running the movie. So there's number two. Your firearms expert likely works for another company, okay? They could be an independent contractor, so you could have some flexibility there, but assuming they work for a company, there's number three, right? Then you have the firearms instru- the, the firearms expert himself, you have the stagehand, and you have Alec Baldwin, right? That's how we get to six. Could you get to more? Yes, and it would come really down to the inner workings of it. But from everything I've read so far, there was one person responsible as the firearms expert, one person responsible for checking it and putting it in Alec Baldwin's hands. Obviously, Alec Baldwin is Alec Baldwin. He's, you know, individual. There's not anybody doing the scene for him. And that's how we get there. So the next question becomes, well, what was in the gun? And they haven't released that yet. But let's make an assumption here. Okay, let's just put our common sense hats on and go, it most likely was a real bullet. Okay, here's why. From everything I've read, one shot. Two people hurt, one shot. I find it hard pressed to believe that if it was a blank, that you could kill one person and injure another, right? My guess, and look, I I don't have any special access to the coroner's report or the police report or anything else, okay? But just from knowing how things work, right, six years in law enforcement tells me a little bit about a little bit, is that the first round went through, it went in, through and through, right, in and out of the first victim, and then hits the director, right, non-fatal wound for the director, fatal wound, right, in, in and out in, in the abdomen area, very, very damaging type of thing, okay? So that's what I would expect them to find, is a live round in it, which as I said before, there's just no excuse for it, right? So how do we get all of those companies involved? How do we get all of those people involved? Well, firearms experts should have checked, right? Should have made sure, okay, this is completely clear, completely safe. There should never be an opportunity for a live round to be on a movie set. There's no need for it, right? There is no legitimate need for a live round on a movie set. So it's not something that should ever be there, right? So the, the firearms expert has a duty, and that's the first thing we have to look at. When we look at the analysis on a negligence case, which is what this is, right, that somebody just uh, didn't follow and do what they were supposed to do, 
we have duty. Did that person have a duty to somebody else, to the victim, right? Did they breach that duty? Did they do something or fail to do something that should have been done, right? And duty, breach, causation, did that breach, right? Did that lack of doing something or actually doing something cause the injuries, right? And you have causation and damages, right? And those two become intertwined, right? Because did did the did the breach, did the lack of action or actual action cause the damages, cause the injuries, right? And, and that's what we have in this case. So, you know, the firearms expert, the armorer had a duty and, and, and should have double checked and triple checked, right? Now we move down the line. Okay. They've gone, they've deemed it safe, right? And now we move to the um, the stagehand who then takes it, that person should be checking and going, hey, is there anything in this? Nope. Okay, good. We're good. Hands it off to Alec Baldwin. Now look, okay, I get it. You know, you, you're the actor. You expect that somebody hands you something. It's good to go. You're there for one purpose. You are there to do your lines, do whatever you're supposed to do, and get out, Right? in out as quick as possible, right? Look, movies take time. I, I can tell you, we do a 30 second video and the thing takes 30 minutes to actually get done, right? And, and so extrapolate that over and, and we're not necessarily doing, you know, big major productions with props and, and explosions and firearms and, you know, that we care if this person was half of, half an inch off their mark and did they deliver that line with the right, you know, pizzazz to it, right? Okay, so think about that, the, the amount of time that you have. So you want to be as efficient as possible, right? So, you know, my guess is, is he takes it, goes, okay, cool. It's been checked, it's been checked, and I'm good to go. But here's the reality. Should he check it himself, right? Now, is that the industry standard? Right, and that's what we can come down to, right? Did, did he have a duty to the person, and did he breach that duty? Right now, look, everybody has a duty not to hurt somebody else, okay? But does he breach that duty? And and that's going to become really kind of a murky picture because it's going to determine it's going to be determined as what the levels are before him and how it gets to him. Now, look, having worked with these things in the past, right? you should probably check, right? You should probably check yourself. It's not the type of thing that you want to leave to. Did that person do his job, right? Or did that did, did that person do her job, right? Yeah, it's one thing you work in an office setting. Did, did him or her do her his or her job, right? Hey, if they did, no big deal, right? But when you're working with a firearm, as we can see, it can become a big deal. Now, how do the companies get involved? It's a thing called respondeat superior, right? It's just a fancy way of saying an employer is responsible for the actions of its employee, okay? That's it. That is all it's saying. And really, all you have to do to be able to prove that part of it is you just need to prove that the employee was negligent in what they did, that they passed that duty, breach, causation, damages test. That's it, right? Because then you can impart that onto the employer. Now, are there other things that you could impart onto the employer, right? Sure. Uh, you could go yeah, uh, negligent hiring, negligent retention, right? And, and 
where those two are a little different is negligent, negligent hiring is at the outset when you hire somebody, negligent retention is you've already hired them, but you've gotten complaints about the person in the past, or you know something as time has gone on, but you've continued to let them work even though you shouldn't have, right? So that can go on to the employer as well. Now, one of the things I have read is the stagehand may have had some complaints against them, and that could become very problematic for the company as we look at what a potential civil case could be. So I do expect us to see some sort of civil case. I would expect to see Alec Baldwin named. Um, I Honestly, I would probably do the same thing, right? And, and it's one of these things, it's not that, you know, you want to put the big name on there. It's that you have to include everybody, right? It just is. It's how the law works. Otherwise, you have what's called a Fabre defendant. And a Fabre defendant is just somebody who has responsibility, but you didn't name, right? Now, that's not to say, and, and we've done this before, I've done this before, where we have, we list a bunch of different defendants. We go through the discovery process, which is where we gather evidence and, and put the pieces of the puzzle together. And then we go, oh, okay, this person really wasn't involved, right? And here's how we know that. Right? And we can dismiss that person. We can go, yeah, okay, you know, we're not going to include you in this lawsuit anymore because we found out through the gathering of evidence that you're not involved. Cool, great, no problem. But we had to have you in in the, in the onset so that we didn't have an issue, right? So you bring everybody to the party, figure out what you have, get rid of the parties that you don't need, right? Now, there's a difference between, right? And, and you know, I think we've talked about it before. I know it, it came up when, when I was on Eakin's show is, does the settlement really mean you're guilty? And, and, and I think let's take that a step further, right? Are we likely to see some sort of settlement before this ever reaches a trial, before it ever reaches a lawsuit? Possibly, right? And, and from my experience, anytime you have something that's fatal, you tend to see things resolve a lot quicker, a lot quieter, right? A lot, a lot more without the need for litigation, right? It's not a good look, right? And, and, and look, juries can tend to be very sympathetic for um, the, the, the heirs, the, the um, remaining people, right? The remaining family when someone is killed. So they know that. So they make a business decision and go, we're going to put a lot of money in this. We're not saying we did anything wrong. Right. And, and look, if I'm a big name in this, I'm going, you know, it, it probably has some sort of insurance. Right. I would expect that, you know, a, 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 an actor would have some sort of insurance to protect them for any liability that happens on set. Right. I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen. Right. Put the firearm aside for a second. There's, you know, you're, you're doing a scene and, and it's an action scene and, you know, you're, you're not supposed to push somebody, but you do push somebody because it just kind of happens in the moment, right? And it's not that you do it because you don't like the person, you're trying to fight the person, but it has to do with the scene. Look, things happen, right? So highly likely there's some sort of insurance there and highly likely I would think that, I mean, if I'm the insurer, I'm going here, take it, you know, keep my guy out of the press, right? Keep him quiet. You deal with all these other people, right? Let, let all these other people be the name and the face of it. Keep my guy out of it. Okay. That's how I would look at it if I was on the other side, right? And that's what we typically see. We see that a lot anytime there's, there's a wrongful death type action. That's what this would be. Okay. Um, for, for the one, uh, you could have a personal injury negligence action for the director. So they're, they're two slightly different things in Florida. They're two separate statutes. 
So two, two separate things that you have to prove, okay? But the underpinnings of it is the same. So that's what we see there. I would expect to see a lawsuit. As we see the lawsuit, maybe we'll jump back in and dive into the different pieces of it. But just want to talk about basics from from what we saw and uh, go from there. So do we expect it? Do I expect there will be some sort of lawsuit or some sort of settlement? Sure. Absolutely. And, and we may not see an actual settle, uh, an actual lawsuit. We may hear that there's been a settlement that's been done. So that's uh, that's what we expect. That's what I expect to see there. All right. So that is that portion of the show for today. And now I want to switch gears a little bit and jump into a listener question. Okay. And I, I think it's a good listener question. And it is who pays for the attorney in a car accident case? Really good question. And really kind of simple answer, right? We're going to get into a little bit more involved part of the answer, but the simple answer is, at least in Florida, for the most part, everybody pays their own attorney fees, okay? So if you get sued, the person suing you hires their own attorney and pays their attorney's fees. And if you are on the defense side, right, the person being sued, you hire your own attorney and you pay your own fees. Generally how it works for the most part, there, there are some statutory differences that, that change that, uh, in contracts, you can see a lot of times where there's a provision in there that is called a prevailing party provision, meaning that whoever wins pays, right? So if you're the plaintiff, if you bring the case and you lose, you end up paying the defense fees and vice versa. Okay. But let's look at it from what the question is asking in a car accident case. And, and it's the same for most negligence cases. Okay. Kind of like what we just talked about with the, um, the, the rust movie shooting is that most times the plaintiff will work on a contingency fee. Okay. The plaintiff's attorney will work on what's called a contingency fee, meaning that the plaintiff doesn't pay anything up front. Okay. They pay it on the backside. They, they pay it. It's a percentage of the total settlement. That's how that generally works. Okay. Um, Generally, state of Florida, 33 and a third percent of the settlement is the fee. If it does not go into litigation, if it goes in the litigation, it is 40%. Okay. And that's paid by the plaintiff, but it comes out of the total settlement in the end. And it's part of the whole breakdown of everything. Okay. So that's how that works. Now, question being, is there a way to flip that around? And there is, and it's really cool. Um, it's something that, that I like to play games with a lot and it changes the dynamics and changes the leverage and can really change a lot of different pieces of the puzzle. And it comes into play when you're in litigation, right? So you file a lawsuit and you know, you want to try to resolve the case and you want to put pressure on the other side too. Well, here's a really cool way. And how does that all tie into attorney fees? Well, there's a thing called a proposal for settlement. And it's something that I like using a lot because what happens is, is if you don't do what's called beating your proposal for settlement, right? So if we file one to, to the defense and the defense lets it expire, they're, they're open for 30 days, right? On day 31, it's, it's no longer in existence, but we go to trial and we on our side beat that proposal for settlement. Guess what? The defense now pays our fees and costs. Our client gets every dime of their final judgment right? Because the defense has paid their fees and costs, which at that point, the cost can be staggering, right? I mean, we can, we can run a case, a jury trial and, and run 40, 50,000 in costs because we have to have doctors come in as experts, right? And we, uh, we spend a lot of time. So our time, our, our fee 
when you when you're talking about a proposal for settlement actually changes in in a lot of senses so um but it doesn't affect the client. The client would only ever be responsible for 33 and a third percent or 40 percent or whatever the agreed upon percentage is, but never more than those two splits. Okay. But there is that way, the proposal for settlement that you can flip who pays the attorney fees. Okay. Now the same works coming back, right? The defense can do that to us as well. And we play a game back and forth and it's a game that I love playing, right? Um, it's it's it can be really fun. You can do some some really cool things with it and turn it from a checkers game into a chess match, which is what I love. So anyway, answer the question, who pays? Okay. Generally you pay your own in a personal injury case, contingency fee. You don't know anything up front. That's how we do things here, right? At Frankie Injury Law, we don't charge anything up front and it just comes as a percentage of the settlement in the end. So if you have any more questions, please reach out to me on that lawfather at tampalawfather.com, 855-LAWFATHER. Call or text me there, right? Always welcome any kind of feedback, even if it's just to say, hey, you know, I'd like to see more of this in the show, or I'd like you to explain this a little bit more, or, you know, whatever else. So reach out to me and uh, we will go from there. Make sure you follow us on all of our social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, and right here on the podcast. Right here from the new Lawfather Studios, which I fully expect to have a little bit more spruced up for you guys that are watching on YouTube the next time. All right. Lawfather Headquarters, Lawfather Podcast, Lawfather out.